Speaking about heaven, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to find that, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. One of the most amazing explanations on resurrection and what's beyond this life. Great description. If you look at this, this this particular chapter has 58 verses. Long chapter. And we know that the translators did this. This was one continuous script, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls when the Scroll of the Isaiah scroll was discovered. That scroll predated Jesus by 200 years. That's how old the Isaiah scroll is. It's in a museum there in um, Israel. But it, it, was, it was a big scroll because all of it was a continuous, it, it didn't have any sections off like we look into our scriptures and we got these chapter divisions. So, <clears throat> What was behind the chapter divisions and uh, putting verses and numbering those verses? Well, one thing is helping us find a particular statement, a particular sentence. But you can almost look at the chapters and you say, why did, they, why did this chapter start here and finish here? Usually it was the theme. The theme commanded that section and they didn't just divide up that theme. And the Gospels are like that, and the book of Acts is like that, because it's a little bit easier there because it's a narrative of, of encounters. And when you start with Romans and then go all the way through, and Revelation is kind of a unique book in and of itself. But those are like letters, and so they may discuss different things in that letter. The reason why there's 58 verses, it shows you the, the, the wealth of information that Paul gives them about resurrection, about the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that, how that applies to us. Um, I'm going to read, first of all, verse 51. And uh, we'll, we'll, you know, go back and forth a little bit in that chapter. The resurrection that Jesus has is connected to us by faith. And he explains that. It's a great, great chapter. Um, in verse 51, I'm, I'm going to use the King James. I'm familiar with that. But um, it's really it's not show. It's I explain or I tell you. I show you. Behold, I show you a mystery. And the reason I'm preaching on that is because I introduced that little word a couple of weeks ago. Mysterion. If you will put that first slide up. I got a, two or three slides here. This is, this is where we're going to start at. Now, we're going <clears> to <throat> go in front of this and go behind this. This is where he uses the word mysterion. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Think about that. This is the mystery that he's saying. I'm going to explain this mystery to you that everyone will not die, but everyone will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. There's two times that word changed is in there. It's in verse 51. We shall all be changed. 
And down in, the, in 52, the end of 52, we shall be changed. And it's not a change like metamorphosis, like that some of the times it's, it's translated. This is a word meaning an exchange. We're going to trade something for something else. Are you following it? And it's kind of fitting, right? We're going to tra- trade mortality for immortality. <clears throat> We're going to trade perishable for imperishable. But it all is connected to that little word, mystery. Now, I wanted to, to put this kind of definition up a couple of weeks ago, but the second slide is going to give you the rendering, mysterion. So it's really kind of not translated. It's more like transliterated. It's just given an English sound. But it literally means a hidden or secret thing not obvious to the understanding. It, some people think of it as a secret but when someone tells a secret, guess what? It's no longer a secret. <laughs> so it can't be something that's secret because then that would diffuse it of its meaning. But it does mean something that's not obvious, meaning there has to be some kind of level of discernment or explanation. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. He, this is why Paul says, and show our or is not really the best word there, I explain to you, I'm explaining to you a mysterion. I'm explaining something to you that's, that's not easily discernible. But you will discern it when you get through reading this. And hopefully when he gets to this point, because it's almost to the end of this explanation, that he's saying, I'm, I'm explaining this mystery to you. And I think the mystery actually starts... In the early verses where he talks about, he's kind of like proving, he's giving all these proofs of who Jesus appeared to and, and how many and on what occasion. And then he says, and he appeared to me. And, and he's going through this whole dynamic of resurrection and how we're connected to it. What is the mystery that Paul is referencing here? What is this mystery? If you remember the theme is resurrection, Paul is dealing how, we, how there's a transition from this life to the life beyond this. Job said this. And Job is, really Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. He is considered part of the patriarchal time. Like in Abraham's time, Job goes way, way back. But Job said this, that even in my flesh, I will see God. Now, this was way before this mysterion is, is being explained by the Apostle Paul. Hundreds and hundreds of years, Job had an idea that even though his body was covered up with sores, ravaged by disease, everything physically in his life was gone. His family was gone, his resources were gone, his health, everything, he lost absolutely everything, and yet he had this resident hope in him Regardless of how archaic or elementary it was, he says, I know that in my flesh I will see God. But he probably didn't know it was going to be this way. But he had something already in him that told him there's, there's life beyond this life. You remember David? You remember when David lost his infant son because of his sin with Bathsheba and the, and the little boy died after a few days? David says, I can't bring him back to me, but I can go to him. Now, now we can say, well, he's talking about 
at death, but he, he was saying at least in that moment, he will be with him. He will be with that child. He, he's really got that also, that resident hope in him. Even though this was a long time before Jesus would come along. And if you look at uh, Isaiah 53, the, the, uh, the suffering servant, when you, read, when you see all of that, this, is, this I think was like hard for them to grasp. Because Messiah was supposed to be a conqueror. He's going to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom where there would be no end. That, that was what Isaiah prophesied. But later on in Isaiah's prophecy, he gives this prophecy and it's, it's kind of like when, when Jewish people hear Isaiah 53, they're amazed at, well, who, who is that talking about? And when they connect it with Messiah, it's kind of like it's hard for them to process because they, they don't think. Think about this. How many times did Jesus tell specifically his disciples that he was going to be raised from the dead? How many times did he tell them? That he was going to die and he was going to be raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, it shocked him. <laughs> ah, he's not alive. I mean, Thomas was like, yeah, I don't believe that for a minute. Like, where was you at in class that day when he was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Destroy this body and in three days I'm going to raise it up, this temple. And yet here it is. But listen to the redemptive wording in Isaiah 53. This is verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased Jehovah to bruise Messiah. He put him to grief. When you will make his soul, his soul, the essence of who he is, an offering for sin, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be, what? Satisfied. God will see the travail of his son and be satisfied. What does that mean? He will be satisfied. Satisfied for his son's suffering or satisfied because the suffering satisfied his own justice. When you pay a debt off, there's a satisfaction note that comes with that. Paid in full. This is God seeing what his son did on behalf of not. He took our trespasses and our sins upon him. Can you put the, the second uh, stanza of the, of, the, of the middle song? That we, what was How marvelous. Second stanza. And I was... I was now, that's the chorus, second stanza. The next, the next one. All right. I, I, I was going to read from now. Look at that. That's Isaiah 53. He took my sins and my sorrow. He made him his very own. This is why God could declare, he shall see the travail of his, of his own son's soul and be satisfied. Because he took, it wasn't him suffering for himself, he was suffering for us. And God was satisfied with that. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And this is continued by, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall. 
justify many. You know, I, I, I was under Carl Strader's ministry for uh, just a brief period of time, but he challenged me to memorize most of Isaiah 53 because he had it memorized. Just a wonder. He shall see the, the righteousness of this work and he will justify many, meaning he will give justification. Justification by faith isn't Isaiah 53. It didn't just show up in Romans. God was pre, pre, uh, predicting this and prophesying this. For he shall bear their iniquities. That's verse 11. Let me read verse 11 in its entirety in Isaiah 53. He shall see the travail of his soul, shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous service servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's that second line. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many and made intercession for us, for transgressors. Now put the next line up there because what he did on the cross connects us to the next life. And with the ransom and glory, his face I last shall see. You cannot have that verse without the previous verse. Him taking our sin upon himself on the cross enables us to be with him for all eternity. Every chance I get when I'm with my grandkids, I, uh, I, have, a, I have at least an isolated time of prayer somewhere along the line. And I was talking to Abby, and I said, you know, when Jesus came at Christmas, he just didn't come as a baby. He grew up as, as the Son of God, and he died on the cross for our sins, and his blood that came out of his body washes our sins away. She says, ooh, and I said, yeah, but guess what? Three days later, he came out of the grave, never, ever to die again. He did that all for us because we, he wants us. And I said, you know what he's doing right now? You know what he's doing right now in heaven? What? He's getting a place ready for us. He is getting a place for us to live eternally with him. How cool is that? But this, isn't that the truth that we should be embedding into? Because it is the truth. What happened on the cross enables us to sing that line. If we don't have, if we don't have the truth of the previous stanza, we don't have that. There's no hope for us. This is why Carl Strader says, all those people says, living a Christian life is such a good life. Even if there was no heaven, I'd still be satisfied with living. He says, not me. There's too many rough places in this life. And Paul says, if this is all we have to hope for, we are all people most miserable. And for anybody to say, well, it's such a good life, and there's no heaven. Well, you just haven't had any persecution or something. You need to be persecuted. You know, you need like, yeah, I'm ready for heaven after all of this. I'm, yes, I believe in heaven. But this was part of it. This is why he did all of this. And this is redemptive language in Isaiah 53. Jesus would bear our sins on himself, die in our place, and his resurrection caught these disciples by 
surprise. Why? Because it was a mysterion. It was something he told them, but they didn't get it. And Paul, in his previous life, I shouldn't say previous life, pre-conversion life, Saul of Tarsus, he thought it was all a sham. And now he's explaining the mystery to us. <laughs> what a revelation he had. But it was blind to him. It was blind to, it was blind to the people that Jesus discipled for three, three and a half years. They did not get this mystery until after he had to visually demonstrate to them. And they had to watch him go up into heaven. And after all the promises, they realized, hey, this is connected to that. And Paul is explaining that. So what is this mystery? Before we glean too much from verses 50 and 51, well, I, I, I put up 51 and 52. Let me go back to 42. If you still have 1 Corinthians 15 there, how Paul led up into this unveiling of this mysterion, this mystery. This is verse 42. I'm reading probably from a little different translation, English Standard Version, so I'm just mixing some things up here, but don't let it throw you off. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown in per- is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, look at that, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Hallelujah. (laughs) Jesus actually bridged the two together in himself, the natural and the spiritual. He came in the natural. He did not just transition from heaven instantly into a man, but he condescended, as C.S. Lewis said, it's almost like becoming to volunteer to be a slug. Volunteering to come down into this microscopic almost existence in the ovum of a woman, a virgin. To be connected to mankind in such an inextricably way, inseparable between being a man of the dust and a man of God, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, becoming that one entity. Mary conceiving the God-child And then you have verse 50, before what I read a while ago. Then you have this verse. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, listen close, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit, inherit incorruption. The first cannot inherit the latter, but the latter can incorporate the previous. 
perishable cannot pull in the imperishable, but the imperishable can pull the perishable. How does that happen? This is the mystery, because there's got to be a change. There's those two places where it's like, behold, I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. We're not all, in other words, everybody's not going to die, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? That when Jesus comes, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. We won't, we won't die. We'll be part of that group that is caught up. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain. Looks like we need a new baptism of that belief system. That we're on, we're on a clock. We're on God's clock. And he says at some point this is going to happen. That in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as we read earlier, I'll show you a mystery. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So this brings us to verses 51 through 55. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It's done. Death has met its match. All that we deal with is going to be swallowed up. And I know the King James reads, you know, oh, death where is thy victory or strength? And grave where is the sting? But it's death, it's thanatos on both. So other translations translate it correctly. It's just, it's just speaking to death. It's like not, Paul's not taunting death, he's speaking the truth. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He answers those questions when he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Death is conquered. Death died. Death does not have a choice in this. It is vanquished. It is done. It's lost its power over us. It's like what Jesus said. And he that believeth in me, though he died, yet shall he live. And he that believeth in me shall never die. Not really. Does Paul seem like he's a little concerned about getting his head cut off? You know, I don't, I don't know if I'd be that tough. Like, oh, so that's the way it's going to happen. Paul doesn't seem like he has any problems with dying. Remember what he said? I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give unto me, and not only to me only, but to all of those who claim him. He's about to lose his life 
that truth does not deter him in any way from avoiding it. He is ready to step across. I think it's just, um, I don't think it's comedic, but it sounds funny. What language does he use? They're about to cut his head off, and what does he say is waiting on him? Crown. <laughs> Do you, does that not, that, you know, I, I'm, I've got this crazy imagination. I, I see that, I like, oh. says, oh, you're going to cut this off? All right, that doesn't work. I got one underneath that. <laughs> but the minute you do that, there's a crown waiting for me that when I step across in an instant, in a flash, I'm going to be whole, more well, more whole than ever before. And how does he... How, it's the mystery that he says, this is what gives us hope. This is what keeps us from being shackled with fear. When Could, could you guys come up? I want to... Let's sing that last song, Break Every Chain. Because you know what? You can put anything in that sentence. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but all those who love his appearing. Behold, I show you a mystery. I'm going to explain this to you. But when he says, death, where is your victory? You can actually say anything in that word. Replace that with any word. Fear where is your victory? Cancer, where is your victory? Anxiety, where is your victory? Frustration, where is your victory? Where is your victory? Because Christ has conquered it. And the chains that we find ourselves trying to pull off of us, in reality, has already been broken. It's already been broken. I'm reading, I'm rereading the book by Chuck Colson, The Good Life. And in that book, he talks about one of the co-founders of AA. Guy had a disastrous life. But this, this, is, this is how it's founded. He knew he couldn't conquer things by himself. That he needed, he needed community. And the strength of any of those ministries with this teen challenge is not, you can't win by yourself. You can't stay secure by yourself. We're supposed to be in the flock, right? If we wander off from the flock, that's when we get in trouble. But even those people, it might not even be like a focus on Jesus. The guy really wanted to focus on Jesus. Now they say, you know, the higher power, whatever your higher power is. That's not how it got started. God started truly as a, a ministry to trust the Lord for what you can't conquer. He can and will and has already conquered. It's our step to trust, to trust Him, to trust what He said to us. And, and that's where the battle is. You know, there's all, all kind of people who's written that the war is in our mind mostly the warfare is in our mind if we can just get to a place to trust and believe and put our confidence in his power to break chains off of us all of us in this room are created are created by God uniquely 
We all have a unique DNA stamp on us. But that's just not a genetic specialty to you. He created each of us with gifts and capacities that's personal to us. And God wants to use those. God wants us to discover more of what he's put in us. And sometimes the chains that need breaking off of our lives are not chains that other people have put on us. It's chains that we put on ourselves. To limit, to say, well, you know, I'm not sure I could do that. Well, that's why we need the Lord, isn't it? (laughs) To take us past ourselves. Would you stand with me?